Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm going to go to Lewis Martin here and and do a bit of Lewis Martin. I think he has written the key book, and Campbell references this quite a bit on Galatians. You can only buy the physical copy. It's so quotable. I would like to just be able to copy and paste good portions of the book. So Martin, is the, the argument that he's making, again, there's false teachers. The, even I suspect that Campbell got his notion of a, the false teacher, that that sounds very much like Martin. Campbell is saying it may be the very same plural teacher or te- uh, teachers or singular teacher. And the argument is that Christians need the law, and in particular circumcision, so as to curb the desires of the flesh. And you, you, we all read the thing with Philo, you know, that, that in some way circumcision was thought to literally deal with issues of sexual desire. And Paul then equates this, you know, the equivalence to the reliance on the flesh. This is Martin. Abraham, in their estimate, would have defeated the desire of the flesh by keeping the law beginning with circumcision. So Paul's juxtaposition of flesh against spirit specifically refers to the foreskin of the the penis. That is, we're not talking metaphorically. Their reliance on the law is literally reliance on this piece of flesh. And this then, in Galatians, is the equivalent of being slave to the elementary principles of the cosmos. And here Martin does this throughout his commentary, describing, you know, what does this mean, these elementary principles, you know, earth, air, fire, water. But of course, it's probably earth over and against air in a dialectic and fire over and against water. Uh, That is that in the ancient world, there were the opposed pairs and these opposed, these antinomies, are the fundamental building blocks of the universe. And the problem with the law that will be equated with the elementary principles, the problem of, and also the problem of the flesh, and that Paul will refer to this present evil age, is they reduce the singular problem, the elements of the cosmos have been made absolute in a kind of divine dialectic. I think that's what Paul's, by the way, I think this is very Hegelian. In this, I think Hegel is a wonderful illustration of Christianity gone bad, because that's the whole, you know, that's the whole point in a Hegelian dialectic. That they take the dialectic to serve in place of God. The law serves in place of God. The elementary principles serve in place of God. In Hegel, the dialectic is divine. So whatever Paul might mean, it seems the law and the flesh, this holds people captive. Now he's not, the approach in Romans is not quite this because I think the false teachers or or the Galatians are subject to a, a very different kind of paganism. But I think we could say something very similar in Romans 7. 
you know, Paul, he's, he's in a dialectic with himself. The law of the mind pitted against the law of the flesh, or the I, the ego, over and against the law of the mind, or the flesh against the spirit. But I don't think it's a matter of one of these, you know, the mind, if only the mind could gain control of the flesh. That would be a very Greek notion. If only noose or mind could get a handle on flesh. That's not Paul's argument. I think that's maybe what the guy in 118 to 32 is picturing. But both flesh and spirit, law of flesh, law of the mind, law of the body, are part of this, this dialectic of the law of sin and death. So it's not the body over and against the spirit that is the problem, but the dialectic, as in Paul's pitting of his mind against the body, that is definitive of the predicament. He sees two laws at work in 723. I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, Romans 723. And so the point is not that one of these laws is right and the other is wrong. The point is that there is a war being waged in which Paul is the victim or in which we're all the victims. And only Christ can bring a resolution to the, this agonistic struggle. And so Martin notes that the antinomies that serve as the building blocks of the universe in Christ, in baptism, have disappeared. He says the cosmos founded on opposed pairs no longer exists. Quoting uh, 327, For when all of you were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ as though he were your clothing. And then we all know the famous passage. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For all of you are one in Christ. The antinomies have given way, the basic building blocks of the cosmos. And a cosmos, you know, is a closed system in this understanding. Those in Christ have suffered the loss of this cosmos, but they've experienced new creation. That is the cosmic, this is Paul, the cosmic order in which the law versus no law, that's the way uh, Martin puts it, circumcision versus uncircumcision, flesh versus spirit, Jew versus Greek, slave versus free, male versus female. That is broken apart in Christ. And this is Galatians 6, 14 to 15. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world, the cosmos, I think he's referring to this basic, the basic building blocks, the basic principles of the cosmos, has been crucified to me, and I to the cosmos. I've achieved unity, I think is what he's describing, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is, I think, a, an alternative. A, uh, it's the same explanation we're getting in Romans, in slightly different language, and I think it's enlightening. I think it helps understand what he's doing in Romans 7 and other places in Romans, but I think ultimately what he's doing with the law. The law is one of these basic principles of the universe, and he doesn't care what law we're talking about.
It's the law, the law given in Adam is universal, and the Mosaic law is in no way a departure from the law given in Adam. And the problem, the predicament is simply aggravated by the Mosaic law. It's not a solution. And so it's not that we have an incapacity of the will or someone attempting to keep the law and they're not able. There is an incapacity to recognize God. There's an innate hostility in 8.8. In the fleshly mind, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Very much over and against the possibilities of 1.18-32. And this hostility arises in conjunction with the flesh and the law equated more or less so it's not a matter oh if we could separate the flesh from the law that we could rescue the law but rather it's a matter of setting the law aside as the basis of understanding the problem and certainly understanding the solution and that then launches paul the rest of romans i think for paul he's made this argument in one to four and then he's going to lay out, okay, what is it then? Where we've set aside discussion of the law for the most part, he'll take it up again. And he pictures in chapter 5, the problem and solution revolves around death and life. 5.17, or if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Problem, solution. You know, this is the future age in part, maybe mainly, I don't know, but it also references a different life now. And this, you know, chapter 6, people are baptized so that they might walk in newness of life, 6-4. Uh, the, there is, the law has been set aside as people have been joined to Christ. And actually, the metaphor here is sexual. It's marriage. Who, who are you married to in 7, 1 to 3? And rather than the law serving, serving to define salvation, the, the picture is the law is completely set aside and the reign of death has ended with the law being set aside. That's actually 521. And so salvation is rescue from death and the reign of death or the rule of sin through death. The rule of death, you know, in 518. And I think this changes up everything. Uh, I think it changes our view of God. He's not a lawgiver primarily. He's not an angry God. It changes our view of the work of Christ. Christ has not come to bear the penalty of the law. He's not come to simply keep the law. It changes our view of the Holy Spirit. And maybe this is the key one, because and in chapter 8, that is that our very life is going to be depicted as grounded in the Trinity. That our life experience, who we are, is Trinitarian, and that is made a reality in and through the Holy Spirit. And so the very nature of human experience and reality are changed up. And of course, all of this stands in contradiction or to justification theory, in which God's anger, you know, is put upon Christ in penal substitution, and that we're primarily dealing with divine hostility, 
what we've just described, just quoting Paul, is not divine hostility, it's human hostility. As Campbell says, the sons and daughters of Adam are fundamentally God's enemies. This is, you know, he's referencing chapter 5, verse 10, chapter 8, verse 5 to 8, as the sinful mind is hostile to God. And I think Romans 7 describes the inner workings of this hostility. It does include law, but not as a point of recognition and enlightenment, but as the place where deception, desire, and death enter in. And so in 7.7, the law gives rise to this forbidden desire. I think we have an immediate experience of the deception. It seemed to offer life. We thought we were grabbing all the gusto we could, but it proves deadly. And so death, you know, the, uh, the ego dies. It killed me. It's, and this death is described, I'm split in half. I'm split over and against myself. And Paul calls this the body of death, or the law of sin and death. And this law is the structuring principle of the human subject, the human psyche. It is controlled by what I think we could call it an orientation to death. We could call it a covenant with death. We could call it a primordial deception. Which, by the way, the psychoanalytic literature, this is the way Zizek talks about it, even when he's not doing Paul. He just continually talks about this primordial lie that is the structuring principle of the human subject. He's not referencing Paul. He's written a whole book in which he continually references the, this primordial deception. And the death drop, of course, comes with the primordial deception. This is a lot worse than we thought in one sense. You know, it's more tragic. It's more all-encompassing than the problem in justification theory. But so too the good news is also more all-encompassing. And that's actually the language of Paul in chapter 5. You know, even more so, the life that is given in Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The problem is huge. The solution is bigger. So no angry, punishing deity, no transgression of the law uh, taken out on the rat, you know, taken out on Christ. But this is the, a picture of a loving God transforming the cosmos and the very makeup of the human experience, the human psyche, human, I think the elementary principles of human culture, society, the psyche, are undone, and this salvation then can be described as, and this is Campbell, as transformational. It's a passage from death into life, a passage from flesh, law, elementary principles, into new life through the Son and the Spirit. And so the old order of bondage, you know, enslavement to the law, enslavement to the flesh, is defeated. And thus, we call it an apocalyptic intervention. This is what is meant by an apocalyptic theology. There is only one resolution. It's not a partial resolution, but it's an apocalyptic remaking of everything. And then, once this is in place, 
we have the possibility of a right understanding of God and a right understanding of the human situation. But I don't think there is that possibility apart from the apocalyptic breaking in of Christ. In other words, if you had to, once you've read this far in the book of Romans and you go back and read 118 to 32, I think it's clear this stands over and against the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Whatever you do with it, this is not Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel is one of deliverance, apocalyptic breaking in, rescue, a new cosmos, resurrection, new creation, and all of this comes about through Christ. And this alone allows for salvation. And then you can have a right understanding. And I think that's 820 to 23 in Romans. This is you know actually the chapter 8 of Romans. Paul, I the only thing that kept coming to my mind as you were saying that is, is that if you don't start with a God of love, um, that God is love, you can come up with the justification theory. But if you start with that God is love, you can't come up with that. Or it's almost sadistic of sorts. You've almost got a confused God. He loves you, but he hates you. It's kind of a dichotomy uh, within God once you go down that route. I think that's right, yeah. I have a book. It talks about that our view of God has actually impact on our brain. That must be true. Certainly, our view of God has an impact upon our experience, upon our view of other people, and our view of reality. And I think justification theory is a kind of damnable view of God. I think this is the view of God that Paul is concerned the Romans are getting stuck with and is trying to deliver them from. I mean, I think I read this right, uh, but uh, Campbell in his work talks about, um, in the justification theory, not only the law, its place before faith or, you know, that salvation, that moment of salvation or whatever, uh, but then the justification turns people right back to the very thing Paul was pulling them away from. I mean, Campbell said it better than what I just said it, but I, I thought that was somewhat interesting. So I think that's why he's written the huge book that he has. I think for the view and the way that he's coming at it textually is, is revolutionary and has to be argued in the way that he does. But of course, the sad thing is that the gospel that our pe people are left with is I think what Paul is saying is the human problem. A punishing, angry deity who is not defined by love, a conditional salvation in which faith is actually a burden that is nearly harder to bear than getting circumcised. Actually, circumcision looks like an easy deal to me in, you know, in comparison to a faith that you can never really be sure that you've done adequately. I think it's David Bentley Hardin talks about the, the, the kind of mental gymnastics that we put ourselves through to say that God is loving, that love just looks like hate, you know, and that, that, that we, we affirm the God of love, but the love that we mean there is just an empty signifier that fills, is mostly wrathful, <laughs> like, it, which is an impossible argument to counter, because the minute you, you sort of leave that realm, anything's possible you could really say what 
whatever you want God to be. Uh, there's no meaning anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I like him on that. What we're asked to deny in Calvinism or maybe just justification theory is our own instinct to say, hey, that ain't right. Our, our own capacity to understand the meaning of words like love. Oh, no, love is actually turns out to be quite awful. <laughs> now, John Calvin actually takes it all a step further, and he says, well, you understand, love is an anthropomorphism. So he just denies the love of God, gets rid of it altogether. As I've described this, and the thing I've not done for you, and I, I need to think about it, but maybe y'all can help me. How is what I've described different from Augustinian original sin? I mean, the, the, the place of death is, that's a pretty powerful counter argument, I think. If the very worst thing that can happen to you is not that you die, but actually that you're saddled with sin that you can never escape. I don't know. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's freeing to see that, oh, yeah, death is actually the true enemy. It's not sin, because if it's sin, that's part of who I am a little bit. And it's kind of, it's difficult to sort of conceptualize how, how can you get up out of that? And, and especially if it means that the terms of your life always have to be behavioral rather than ontological or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I would say the major problem, the major thing I get out of it is that in one understanding, God is the problem get to be overcome. You know, it's like, man, right? It's, it's God isn't made the solution. God has made the problem. You, even if you're a little baby, you haven't done anything. You're going to hell forever. I just don't understand. It's like, you know, I don't know. Maybe John, um, Father John can help us, but because he's done a lot more with um, St. Augustine than I have. But it just boggles my mind that such a brilliant genius profound thinker you know towards the end of his life could be monstrous i mean this is a and he can't be completely blamed i mean he did have the you know the vulgate he was working with what he had you know so we got to kind of i guess cut him some, like right i mean that's he was working with what he had he didn't have the greek this is what happens i guess something that's lost in translation but a whole uh vision of god i, I guess comes forth from this great genius where just working in hospice, man, a lot of people I think see um, God as more of an obstacle than their salvation. You know, I, I don't mean to overstate it, but people are um, very confused by this whole thing. I mean, this whole thing gets super duper confusing, right? And gives birth to things like Calvinism and, uh, you know, all sorts of wrong-headed ideas, you know? And I think that what you're talking about is the emphasis is not really a, a, at all on sin or death. The emphasis is on Christ. I don't know if Douglas Campbell or if you are equating the life of the mind with the spirit. Let me speak to that a little bit. By the way, Ryan Hemmer has just published his book. I did a blog on it. I think it's quite brilliant. And what he is doing is answering, I think, your question, and that is describing human experience. That is, the, that it is a matter 
of the transformation of the mind. That is the spiritual thing that is, is happening to us. That transformation of the mind is then an entry into an intelligibility, and clearly Ryan is using a lot of Bernard Lonergan here, that it is an entry into an understanding, not to say that we understand everything, but there's a huge difference between the unintelligible and the intelligible. You know, we don't have to understand or grasp everything to understand. And that then is at the very foundation of human mind, experience. That is, where do we encounter God? And by the way, did you see who won the Nobel Prize this morning? He is a writer I'd never heard of, but his huge novel, I just read a little piece of it, about it in The New Yorker. He has a very profound sense, Matt, of, of what you just said. And that is that we are pervaded with this experience of God. Uh, it, it is at once so pervasive that God is in and through everything. And yet there is the sense that he is, you know, so distant. The way that he just briefly described that, I think, captures that experience. That we should expect that it is God's, you know, it is the Holy Spirit that we're encountering in, in the life of the mind, in our own experiential understanding of ourselves, of God, and of other people. That is the work of the Trinity in us. Yeah, and to forget God is a deception that gives rise, you know, which is a death, an orientation to death. To forget God is an orientation to death that gives rise to sin, uh, right? Into a certain orientation. It's, it's, it's a fundamental deception about the life just in general that, you know, without reference to God, as Kierkegaard put it, to the power that established the self. You know, it's the to be the self apart from the power that created the self. So in other words, it just goes into everything that you do in your book with Zizek and Lacan with the subject of the lie. But so, yeah, I guess I kind of like that, you know, the life of the mind and the life of the spirit, because Christ is the logos itself. God, you know, Christ is reason itself. So in as much as we're communing with God, uh, we won't sin, first of all, right? Like, uh, as soon as, like sin is a departure from the logos, from reason, from the life of God, of the Holy Spirit. I, I just think that that's a much more attractive Christianity than the alternative, you know, where what we're talking about is a full engagement of the life of the mind, a constant, you know, this is Hart's book, The Experience of God, that God is consciousness itself. That's what Hart argued many years ago with many other Vedantic thinkers, etc. But um, that's, you know, he has a philosophy of mind book coming out. That's all I got is is that the 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 participation in reason is a participation by uh, definition in Christ in the logos, but we can clearly depart from that. We can become irrational, call it fleshly, call it death, call it you know whatever you want, but it's not participating in the in the life of God, you know. But I'm afraid that what's happened in a lot of theology, though, and this is goes back to what you've been just saying for years and years is that I remember you, you drew a triangle on the whiteboard. You were doing the sub penal substitutionary atonement, and now you know you have the father and you have the son over here on this corner, and you go, and it's like, well, who's left out of this equation? And it's like, human beings. <laughs> you know? We are. Uh, do you remember? Yeah, do you remember yeah. doing that? Um, 
and so yeah it's it becomes a very strange sort of uh idea whereas what we're talking about wouldn't it be salvation itself right now in other words participating in and through the the church in the life of the mind is a participation in the spirit in the life of god where there's clarity revelation illumination enlightenment transfiguration all those different things you know but to depart from that you know to get a need you know to get wasted or whatever is to you know sort of give up the the participation in the in conscious in the very consciousness which is god itself you're resigning yourself to uh death <laughs> that's the worst thing about getting drunk you know if you get drunk you can't pray you know that's how you know when you've had too many drinks if you can't pray right it's like it's cut off your community your communion with god or you know if you're, if you're going to sit there at your computer and look at porn or whatever it's like well you've you've you know you've kind of turned away in some way from the life of the mind which is where the spirit flourishes right and where we flourish it is transformational that's what you're describing that's the way douglas right. campbell sums this up but of course that's the way paul sums it up that we're just in other words the issue is not missing hell and going to heaven yeah the issue is being transformed into his likeness to become living right. sacrifices it is to enter into an alternative order of understanding and experience and i'm quite happy with the use of the word reason but I think we all know that reason here is we're talking about a different order of reason. The reason that we have in Christ, it, it probably follows many of the same rules uh, in that it's not contradictory. But of course, it is over and against a reason founded on the fundamental principles of the cosmos. I think that human reason per se is like that thing that Paul is taking on among the Galatians, that it is a dialectic. Now, we could even, you know, I'm not, you know, it's a particular kind of dialectic in which you get things up and running through the antinomies, through the opposed pairs. Right. You know, and it could be the, the failure of the life of the mind that you're describing, you know, this failure of theology that you've been describing over the years or whatever, also then gives rise to a total failure to engage politically in a christian way economically and in christian in other words right like we're uh people just become stupefied almost right by a by a, a misunderstanding i i don't know i think that maybe maybe john can weigh in here or whatever because i maybe i'm going too far because we all know simple quote-unquote you know beautiful simple people who who seem to have a deeper spirituality you know that, than i do but i'm just saying as a almost like a as opposed to the particular, the more universal seems to be that there is a type of theology uh, all in the different religions, we call it fundamentalism or misunderstanding of God, though, that gives rise to or, or, or almost prevents a flourishing of a Christian politic or a Christian uh, ecology or etc. Right? Like there's a, there does seem to be a sort of a stilting of the mind that could be for sure grounded in a failure of the life of the mind i mean i think that it is and so that's why i was asking about equating the life of the mind with the life of the spirit because the logic then would be that the more the more spirit-filled you are the more um you should be able to engage with the mind <laughs> the, and, the and life is problems of the world life is the the key word there it is the that life spirit 
of course, it's the life of, it, it is life. And the alternative is this thing we're calling death that has a very particular antagonistic dialectic kind of violence. Dostoevsky said that it takes something more than intelligence to act intelligently, which seemed like more of a, maybe of a sort of almost like a Lonerganian sort of thing to say, right? In other words, like, there's plenty of super intelligent people who are unspiritual. So there must be a life of the mind that can flourish in a different way uh, that, that doesn't act intelligently. Well, I, I mean, I, if Brian's writing on Lonergan, it's not the, the life of the mind. The success of the life of the mind is not about how much you know, but rather about how authentically you know anything, how you're knowing yourself, which would essentially be something like, I mean, for example, if you, a lot of the examples that he uses back in the, back before people took the scientific method seriously, you might have people come up with all these insights uh, an insight is just a discovery of something that might be true. It's basically a hypothesis, but they never tested them. And so you don't know if it's true or not. It's just an insight. That's all it is. Uh, or vice versa, you can come up with an insight and you can know the truth. But as we know, that doesn't mean people, I think to Dostoevsky's point, that doesn't mean people live according to the truth. And so what it means for Lonergan to become a fully human knower is to have that movement within yourself from the unrestricted desire to know potency to act which is to make a judgment uh, that is reasonable through being intelligent asking all the questions that you can etc uh, and coming up with the answers but then uh, also having the moral obligation to carry that out so that you're transformed and changed and I think that that's the life of the mind that would be the spiritual life. It's not about how much or how little you know, or how much or how little you read, etc. And so when he talks about sin, bias works against that process. So bias can enter in in terms of individuals or groups, and in that step of say responsibility, you may know something is true, but you refuse to live accordingly. And that's because you privilege the self or a group above others. Uh, it could be that this happens in, at the, the step of intelligence. You don't even want to ask questions or make judgments or seek answers because if you would acquire new knowledge, it would require that you change. So you have a sort of general bias that just uh, makes you ignore the truth. Uh, it could happen psychologically. It could happen with not dealing with your own um, trauma. or And all of this, of course, is according to the, the breakthrough here. It's the same breakthrough that Einstein's making, is that statistical laws actually matter. It's not just, we don't live in the sort of universe where you could figure out all of the laws of the universe and thereby you could accurately, say, predict the future or something like that. It's not about how much you know, but it's statistical laws. Thomas Aquinas says this. He says uh, the whole problem with sin is that the number of stupid people is infinite. In other words, we have a, there's a statistical law that says we're going to screw up, and we're going to screw up for all of these reasons of bias. I think that's actually what the Apostle Paul is, Aquinas says this as he's thinking about Romans. And so what has to happen is a transformation in which we are, if to put it in more modern terms, the statistical odds become 
those where the odds for sanctity become greater. Well, how does that happen? That happens with God. Uh, it's, it's all it's the Romans eight stuff. It's uh, no longer are you identifying as an eye over and against the law, trying to find salvation in the, in this way that would bring death, but rather you find life in Christ. You have a new basis for living that is ultimately true. So you're living in accordance with then uh, the grain of the universe or something like that. And so the and that's growing in virtue. The statistical laws then of you uh, becoming virtuous increase um, drastically when you are open to God's grace and God's grace is cooperating uh, with you in your life towards your proper end, etc. cetera. Uh, so does that make sense, Matt? That is what you were asking about. Yeah, that was, that was what I was asking about. That's, that's excellent. You know, it's, it, it's just, it gets a little, maybe for me, at least like a little overwhelming that, um, it does seem like the vat, like a huge, the, the church is in quite the crisis. You know, it, it does seem to be a failure of thought in many, in many ways, and we may be trying to trace that, you know, out, but just interacting with people on a daily basis as a hospice chaplain, you know, you just kind of see that people just kind of identify as Christians, but that doesn't really doesn't ha it doesn't a lot of times speak to their, they're dying, you know? So it's like, man, if it's not going to speak there, uh, there might be a problem, you know? So it becomes a, almost like a little crush soul crushing or something as a Christian, because I've run into this over and over again where there does seem to be a disconnect even as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death for, for if not everybody not i don't mean to be a, make a blanket statement but um many people it's in their hospice dying experience the people who do walk with christ seem to be that much closer to him as they're dying i mean it's it's pretty beautiful to see but i guess i just mean you know in the church in general there does seem to be a it's a terrible, terrible sort of failure of thought uh, that's resulted in a catastrophic American Christianity that is imperialistic and oppressive and racist and whatever else. Pretty evil stuff. This is where um, I read uh, whatever the 30 pages on Campbell. And um, for me, this, this little chapter we read was my, was my favorite so far. As he talked about, and I don't know if this is some of the problem that that, that you encounter, you know, uh, there with with hospice or not, but um, it really made sense to me that you go back to justification theory. There's no change. In other words, you know, it's right. a, there's a decision made. I mean, sure, you might say, well, now uh, we got the Holy Spirit in us, we should change. But if you if you go to salvation as participation in christ that's completely different and uh, i don't know i really appreciated campbell uh in this um this this chapter here because i think it speaks to a lot of what we were what you guys were just talking about and i like uh jonathan you bringing in aquinas helps me <laughs> for our little aquinas you know i think there's a lot of confusion about this whole bit on original sin and Augustine, and how he factors in, and what that has to do with the Western Church, and um, justification theory. And I would just say that the modern Protestant interpretations of that problem and how it functions in theology are not at all what 
the church gleaned from Augustine's argument with Pelagius in the beginning. Matter of fact, the Council of Orange, which is the bits of Augustine the church tithes, decides to take up and push forward, don't even quote him on Romans 5. That's not what they're, they don't care about that. That's not what's at stake. It has nothing to do with whether or not uh, how sin spreads to all people. Basically, and this is true at the time of the Reformation, too, if you go read the 39 articles, what you'll find is they don't care about any of that either. And they're still worried about Pelagianism, which is odd in and of itself. Uh, but there's books been written on that. Why are they? Why do they care about Pelagianism in 1549? Whenever they were, uh, that's not. I don't think the right year, but whenever they the 42 articles were written, and it has much more to do with this idea that, uh, and it ties into theosis. What David was just saying, it has much more to do with the idea that the church wanted to specify that sin is a problem for humanity. There's no such person that exists by, say, what you might call natural grace and can achieve salvation. Now, they don't square the circle all the way into the Middle Ages, but here, here's what's at stake. Pelagius is basically saying that it's at least logically possible, whether he actually thought it was uh, possible in real life, that's up for grabs, but at least logically possible that somebody could live by the light of natural grace alone, the grace of your creation, and that you would not need Jesus Christ to be saved. That's what This is what Augustine's arguing against. So Augustine argues against it in a, very, a variety of ways. Mind you, the church does not checkmark most of the ways that he argues against Pelagius. You get a very short document from the Council of Orange uh, added to a letter by Pope Boniface II, and they're going to go through this debate because some monks had written uh, uh, to the Pope asking a question about all this. And the main points that get highlighted are that, um, actually, it's very in line with some of the stuff that Campbell's pushing is right. Uh, if anyone says that the whole person that is in both body and soul was not changed for the worse through the offense of Adam's transgression, but that only the body became subject to corruption with the liberty of the soul remaining unharmed, then he has been deceived by Pelagius. Uh, in other words, that because death gives you a new orientation, and that new orientation is one that affects your ability to live righteously. You can't do it. What And they all just build off. That's the first point. And then they just add to this. The idea, the way they end up figuring this out, and this was a big problem with the question of infant baptism, because nobody had been able to give a satisfactory answer for what the life of the Christian is all about after you're baptized, especially when they're baptizing infants, because it was imagined that the way grace was working primarily was a therapeutic healing grace. Uh, and so God, everybody could conceive of this. It's a, what later gets called habitual grace. God infuses, this is before the Reformation, infuses righteousness into the Christian so that the Christian does not live by the power of their own life, but by the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ. You have the gifts of the Holy Spirit infused into you by the grace of God. This is not of yourself. Now you can live this life. You are healed. But, of course, that's not the whole story, and people were skeptical about how that could answer all of the questions uh, that had been brought up both by Augustine and Pelagius, 
but also the questions they're asking later. And eventually they come up with this category uh, that they were already talking about, by the way, deification. The category that they come up with is gratia elevans, the, the way in which God's grace works in the life of the Christian to give you the life of Christ. So how is it that the Holy Spirit's work is to make the character of Christ present in your life or the life of Christ present in your life? There's a true union here. And they're going to be very careful. It's none of this business that Luther gets about, oh, you got to believe, and then it's a legal fiction. It's how does this actually happen in your life? And the, the circle that they're trying to square, and they're doing this with the Book of Romans, and um, as well as the rest of the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of John gets brought up a lot as well, because there's a lot about abiding and union uh, and it being the work of the Father and, uh, and John's Gospel. How is it that God is the one who is completely at work in your life, making this union happen? This is the revisionist reading of Romans, right? That it's all about a, a mystical union with Christ. How is it possible that that's the case? God is doing that, and yet you still have free will. So that's the big question that they're going to continue forward with. It doesn't really get answered in a satisfactory way until the 13th century, and then, basically, as people are arguing with that answer, you get what's called the new science. And this is what Luther and the Reformers are trained in. And, um, of course, they decide that they're going to ignore that whole conversation, which has been the way you read Romans in the Catholic Church since Augustine. And they're going to say, none of that can be the case. It has to be all about justification, because we know we're sinners, and we know that we are simultaneously sinner and saint, and um, this has to be the work of God. And if it's the work of God, there can be no human participation. It must, therefore, be imputed righteousness, not infused righteousness. It must be a forensic definition of justification. And then you get a new definition of original sin, by the way, too, because they don't care about the Council of Orange. They can, they, whatever. They're just going to go back and read Augustine straight, and infuse that into Protestantism, uh, and that's where you get all this up and running. So I, I, I think, like, this is always curious to me about this conversation about, on Romans, not just with Campbell, but say since uh, E.P. Sanders. In biblical studies, there's been a move to try to negotiate an interpretation of Romans that is going to solve all of these speculative theological issues. But all of the speculative theological issues are the product of uh, you know, 50, at least 1,500 years of arguing. So I'm not quite for sure how just negotiating with the interpretation is going to fix all those problems. Uh, that's my own personal take. I have a, a friend who I think he maybe got this idea from Jordan Daniel Wood, but he often will say to me, uh, history doesn't proceed by dialectic, it proceeds by incarnation. Just thinking about the dialectic new creation over against the antinomies, I think is, is how you put it, Paul. Is the, uh, the thing that's being presented, does it overlap with the same thing that the hypostasis does? Where the hypostasis is like, it almost, it solves, it solves the problem of non-contradiction, um, but in a way that you don't really understand? Yeah, you're referencing Maximus there, and I think clearly in a Maximian understanding that the, the that is that who God is in the Trinity in 
Christ in the incarnation is who he is then in and this is the goal of in, in all of creation and so that there yeah that there is this to, to speaking I think to what John is describing also it's not an overriding of human will or free will there's the synergism that you can see at work in the Trinity but it's a synergism that's shared then with human beings the the reason why I was excited about the pushback against the antinomies and it's uh i work with engineers mostly um so they're all about antinomies they really are quite into those those things uh dialectic etc uh, i don't know jo john if you were like if that right after matt i think you you maybe went into lonergan uh for a bit there and that felt very I don't know if he was an engineer at some point in his life, but it felt kind of engineering to me. <laughs> Got a PhD in economics and mathematics. Oh, there you go. Because <laughs> there's something about the promise of the hypostasis as somehow being like what's there and the proximity over against, like, like even just speaking to what you were saying, Matt, about the life of the mind and is the is the promise of the church and forgive me if i'm if i'm misinterpreting what you're saying but like is what's needed in the church a renewal of the life of the mind i i'm sure that that would help but i also wonder sometimes if what's needed in the church is a renewal of unity based not on a dialectic or of like this is where this is what's right and this is what's not right uh this is this falls into this camp or this falls into that camp but actually just what's thereness of the church right like the somehow just proximity i mean the hypostasis is christ you know the right i mean we're to have the mind of christ uh like paul was saying it's a trinitarian relationship with three persons that's like a heavy thing right but in other words like so there's the person of the father the person of the son the person of the holy spirit one god that in some way is consciousness uh you know consciousness itself is a participation in that life and so in other words um proximity to a person as you put it you know uh, to a proximity to a, a i think that's how you said it to a hypostasis yeah it's like in other words like the closer that we i guess are embodied by this life of christ you know the more the the, the life of the mind will flourish uh etc right uh, but in other words this is about I, I think that the thing that cuts through all this and I, it's really a profound insight is the unconditional that is that really does seem to be the key thing it's like in other words are we oriented to an, a person who unconditionally loves or are we oriented to a law-like father figure you know that's an other that's over and against that's a threatening obstacle or are we talking about a love an unconditional loving person who is consciousness itself that we're invited to participate in the life of and that that's salvation that's transfiguration that's sanctification you know, all those different stuff right so i do think that what paul's been hitting on and it might be in sort of like a maybe obscure ways in some ways but you know whether it's psychoanalytically or in other ways that I, you know, the symbolic or, you know, the, the, the superego or the, the, la you know, language, the law, some of this stuff can get really confusing, but I just think that that's why Father Al Kimmel, you know, in his book, Destined for Joy, he really does cut right through to just say, isn't this really about 
whether the gospel is the, is unconditional or not. And the the good, you know, that gospel is that the good news is that God is love, that God's love is unconditional for all of creation, for every bird, every animal, every leaf, every bit of creation, every alien. I don't care what it is, however far we want to go, right? That that all of the cosmos is loved by God unconditionally. And so what I think Paul's been describing is is because of death we would exchange that in, for, in some way for a law that actually is a death-kneeling, violent, obscuring of a real person, actually three real persons that are one God. And we substitute the, uh, the unconditional love of God for once you make that chain, once you make that trade and actually trade in the unconditional love for God, you, by definition, have to accept some sort of law that would be the condition for communion with this, as you put it, hypostasis, or hypostasis, however you want to say it. So I think that that really is a profound way to cut through all this with justification. In other words, like, I, I guess if, if Christ loves me uh, unconditionally, that is justification. That is justification, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just the participation in the tr in the reality of the of uh, you know capital R, the real. Um, but unfortunately, what we would do though is, as Paul keeps saying over and over, is that we would instead you know reify some sort of law, some sort of obstacle, some sort of wall so that that has all these terrible consequences that are death dealing, oppressive. You know, whether it's the superego or just violence towards other people, misunderstandings about the Old Testament, you know, mistaking uh, God, you know, for someone other than Jesus. These are difficult things, but that's why I think it's really important to cut through all that to just say, hey, Dave, David Rawls, do you believe in the unconditional gospel, in the unconditional love of God? It's a tough question because anybody would be like, yeah, you know, I do. You know, but you gotta, you know, but, but, you know, but you gotta do, you gotta participate, you know, you gotta, it's like, there's, it's a tough one. I, I'm content. I'm very happy to just say, uh, you know, my priest, uh, you know, my Orthodox priest always tells me that all Orthodox and just really Christianity is, is to just like, receive the love of Christ. <laughs> that is all, that's really all that it is, is to just accept and receive the love of Christ and to continually repent meaning to turn back to the acceptance of God's love and God's grace, that that's what repentance is, and that we make a we make this much more complicated than what it is, but that what Christianity really is is just a continual returning to the accepting, unconditional love of Christ, and that that's precisely what the repentance is, that is exactly what the Christian life is, and that we can do that in any number of ways, whether our mind is strayed and we stop thinking about God or we fall into sin or whatever, but to just return and just to accept the grace and love of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the, that is the Christian life. It is person as over and against law. Let me, uh, John, you said a couple of things that I, that are interesting and that relate to what Jeff said. And that is that I, I think as little as, uh, you know, in the history of theology, one of the big things in what we call speculative theology, which is just the idea of apprehending reality in a sense, you know, understanding the now. But strangely enough, the, I think that the key part of that has been a description 
of the inner workings of the Trinity. In other words, as that has been understood and refined, I think that speculative theology has made forward steps or sometimes backward steps. And so it is this, that our comprehension of the inner workings of the Trinity is the way in which we're going to understand who we are in our relationship. This is the work of theology, is to understand who God is, not because that's some abstraction removed from who we are, but because that is the, that's the all-encompassing reality that we're being drawn into. And so I agree with you, John, that what we're doing in Romans is actually, I think, at least with Campbell, is perhaps just removing an obstacle uh, that, that has been there. Let me quote Bernard Lonergan. I never get to quote Lonergan. The root of the problem, I believe, its really baffling element lies within the subject, within each one of us. For the problem is not solved merely by assenting to the propositions that are true and by rejecting the propositions that are false. You know, a kind of straightforward, logical understanding. It is a matter of intellectual conversion, of appropriating one's own rational self-consciousness, of finding one's way behind the nature of nature, the thought of thought, of words and books, of propositions and proofs, of concepts. He's saying we're, we get behind these things and judgments. We get behind these to their origin and their source, to the nature of nature, the thought of thought. That is oneself as intelligent and reasonable. That captures a good deal of the Lonerganian project. But I think that also captures a good deal of what speculative theology or what theology in the now is about. This is, this is the movement that we're always about. Let me make a claim, and, and I'm happy to have my claim here debunked. And that is that the movement of Romans seems to me, that is that we begin with Paul is describing, here's this predicament. The predicament is a problem with the law, and then we, we move and we come into the re resolution of this problem in and through a recognition. I think Romans 8 is really Trinitarian. It's about how we are participants in you know, calling Abba Father through the relationship with the Son through the Father by the Spirit. But isn't that a way of describing what the history of theology always does? And this has to be crude, that it, there is always a falling back into a kind of propositionalism, if you will, into a kind of logicalism, into a kind of positive, you know, positive doctrine has its place, but just being satisfied with that. There is a, a satisfaction that we can almost describe as a return to life in the law, and that this is the human project, the theological project, that we're always rediscovering and deconstructing this predicament and arriving once again at the resolution that is there in life in the Trinity. 
to go along with the unconditional love, you know, gospel or love, like I legit think that St. Paul's argument, you know, he's going through all these twists and turns and all this stuff. And I think that he really does. The crescendo is in chapter 11, right before in chapter 12, he starts with some more pastoral stuff, but there's a lot of good, strong theology there too. But, you know, reading from the NRSV, remember this is at, this is at the very end of 11 where he's gone through all these different arguments uh, this to me is a legit summary of his gospel starting in verse 32 for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him to receive the gift in return for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That seems to me to be St. Paul's gospel, culminating in that magnificent crescendo there in chapter 11. He's going back and forth in a, you know, 9 through 11. He's going back and forth. How can Israel you know, fail to be, and how can, you know, it's an agonizing sort of torturous thing. But he's already done that with the, you know, the Jews, the with the Gentiles, with the, right? He keeps doing it in a myriad of different ways with the uh, Romans 7, Romans 8, or however you want to put it. And to me, it, it, it culminates in that universal, unconditional love of God. And if we don't, take that i've always said that that apocatastasis is not some sort of ancillary doctrine or something you know that we can kind of take it or leave it i think that it is at the very heart of christian theology participation you miss that you miss the unconditional gospel that's what the discussion is about we can do justification theory or we can do apocatastasis participation transformation I don't think those two things fit together. One is totally incoherent. The other one is totally coherent. It literally, all things are from him and to him and through him, and they cohere in him. You know, that God will be all in all is an unconditional, coherent Christian vision of, you know, human reality of the, of the cosmos. And the other one is very confusing. That's the thing about Apocatastasis. To me, it really simplifies theology it simplifies the whole thing it makes sense to me it was like a key that unlocked that oh christianity actually makes sense (laughs) and you know what i mean in other words right it's like the unconditional gospel that makes it make sense but with justification theory and everything that comes from it it's like make it make sense (laughs) i can't understand any of this stuff it's super confusing so i think that 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 uh, simplicity you know that simplicity is beautiful Unfortunately, the I think con- Christians often love their cognitive dissonance, right? That's the thing that makes them know that it's from God, is that it's creating sort of pressures in their mind that uh, are uncomfortable, and you have to hold two opposing ideas at once, and that means it's real. <laughs> yeah. But I agree. Yeah, with yeah. You. yeah. I mean, Kierkegaard... You know, nobody struggled with paradox more than Kierkegaard, you know, but he was a universalist in his his diary, if you think his diary is serious. I like the verse, and that's a good place to end, Matt. I I think that does sum it up. All right, good conversation. We'll see everybody next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Okay. Bye. Good night.
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.